This week's TribCast is sponsored by Hogg Foundation for Mental Health. Kids across Texas are beginning the school year. Let's not forget the trauma they may bring with them. Learn more at hogg.utexas.edu. And a large majority of Texans support Medicaid expansion and say it's very important for candidates to address issues that make health care more affordable. Those are just some of the results of a new statewide Episcopal Health Foundation health policy poll on health care access and affordability in Texas. Find out more at EpiscopalHealth.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tripcast for November 4th, 2022. It's the Friday before election day. The last time we'll be talking about these elections where we at least don't know the results. And uh, this week I am joined by three of our top political reporters, including uh, San Antonio-based Patrick Spitek. Hey, Patrick. Hey, thanks for having me. And I think that's Austin-based James Barragon, although this mustache that he's wearing, I'm not entirely sure. Is that you, James? Uh, that, it's me. Happy November, everybody. I'm still here at TGIFBED. Thank God it's Friday before Election Day. Yes, uh, obviously our listeners cannot see James, but they're just going to have to take our word for it. <laughs> James is sporting a mustache this week. And uh, our Washington, D.C.-based correspondent, Matthew Choi. Hey, Matthew. Hey, other Matthew. How's it going? Great, great. Thank you all for joining us. So I'm going to um, not talk about the Beto Abbott race off at the top here, because frankly, I'm more interested right now in what's going on in South Texas. I think that is where a lot of the energy and focus is happening. Even in the governor's race, we have Governor Abbott, who will be spending his election night in McAllen, in part, I think, to signal how high of a priority this is for the Republican Party. Patrick, you have been down there um, this week. You, you're you now in San Antonio, but you spent some time even farther south in the RGV before then. And you came back with a story about how increasingly confident Republicans are about their chances down there in South Texas. Tell us a little bit about what you found and why you came away with that impression. Yeah, so just to set the stage, uh, Republicans are focused on three congressional seats in South Texas. Uh, one is the seat currently represented by Democrat Henry Cuellar. Um, another one is an open seat. And then another one is the seat that's currently represented by a, a Republican, Myra Flores, who won that seat in a special election in June. Uh, but her opponent in that race is a Democratic incumbent from the neighboring district, Vicente Gonzalez. And so these seats have really become um, you know, uh, central to the Republican offensive in South Texas. And as we reported in, in the story, uh, the Republicans are, are really starting to see a path to maybe winning all three of them. Um, you know, They're openly talking about at least the possibility of that. I think they're most confident in uh, flipping the 15th district, um, which on paper looks like the most gettable for them. It was redistricted to be a district that Donald Trump would have carried by three percentage points. Um, but they're also feeling pretty optimistic um, in Myra Flores's district next door in, in reelecting her. Um, and that's a district that uh, Joe Biden would have carried by 16 percentage points. And so um, it, was a it was redistricted to be actually much bluer based on the presidential margin in 2020. And so for, you know, I think for Republicans, as we say in our story, winning that district would be probably the sweetest victory. 
um, just because it was redrawn to not really be in play necessarily. Um, and so, you know, that's where the, the battlefield is right now. So what's happening here? Why, how did we go from, you know, possibly drawing a district that they could pick off and, and have the narrative, you know, which seemed to be what people were thinking about in 2020, or, or I guess 2021, when redistricting happened to possibly Republicans winning all three? What's, what has shifted on the ground to, to make this seem like a realistic outcome? Well, each three of these races is uh, pretty unique. Um, you know, I think in the 15th district, the one that they're most likely to uh, pick up, um, you have a Republican candidate in Monica De La Cruz who's become very well known. She ran for the seat back in 2020 um, when it was not on no one's radar and came surprisingly close, I think within three points. Um, she jumped right back into the race after that election and, uh, you know, has really uh, not taken anything for granted. Um, and, you know, kind of put this seat off the map for the national Democrats who have, uh, as of this moment, declined to do any serious TV spending uh, in that race, much to the, um, you know, much to the dissatisfaction of some in-state Democrats. And so in that race, you have someone in Monica De La Cruz, who is just, uh, I think, really firmly established herself as the standard bearer of the kind of new brand of, um, you know, uh, Hispanic Republicans in that district. Um, and then, you know, over in the 34th district, um, you have someone in Myra Flores who, you know, already, you know, had a, a bit of a kind of organic social media following heading into her special election and heading into this race. And it just got, you know, supercharged, um, you know, once she won that special election, she's really become, um, you know, quite a, uh, you know, uh, exciting figure to Republicans down there, like basically um, a star, at least to, to local Republicans. Um, and so she's, as you point out in the story today, I mean, she knows that there are more kind of traditional Democrats in the district than Republicans. And she's working hard to just basically flip people, um, you know, who have voted uh, Democrat their whole lives out of tradition, um, you know, and, and are now questioning whether uh, the party is truly with them. Um, and she's running against a Democrat in Vicente Gonzalez, who, yes, he's, he's been in Congress uh, for a few terms. And yes, he has a little more of a moderate image that is definitely in the mold of a South Texas Democrat. Um, but he's had some missteps in this race, or he's at least done some things to kind of just further fuel the excitement uh, and the sense of purpose on Myra Flores' side of the race. He's you know, made comments that have been criticized as, as racist and sexist and misogynist. And, you know, every time something like that has happened in this race, um, it's only kind of hardened the resolve, I think, of the Republicans on the other side. And so he's, you know, again, I don't, I don't know if you want to call them gaps or, or whatever, but he's done some things that I think it's indisputable has really energized my reporter's side of the race. Matthew, how much should we hear about this. I mean, we're talking about three seats here. Um, you know, unless unless things go differently than a lot of people are expecting, it's probably not a tipping point in Republicans winning the House. But I mean, this seems to be something that has really captured the imagination of both parties, particularly Republicans, not just in Texas, but but nationally. I mean, is this is it the symbolism? Why why does this matter so much to folks? Right, for sure. I mean, there's absolutely the symbolism aspect of this. Um, this These races are kind of viewed as like a bellwether in terms of uh, Republican outreach to Latino voters. Um, they're trying to go, to go against this traditional narrative that um, their outreach to Latino voters really kind of like is only focused around like 
South Texas Cuban, uh, excuse me, uh, South Florida Cuban immigrants, mm-hmm. um, and that they can appeal to things like, um, you know, reproductive rights, uh, immigration, um, and it's really important to like talk about, you know, the role that um, democratic messaging and Republican messaging on border security has kind of played in this race. Um, a lot of rep- a lot of Democrats actually um, in Texas have been kind of complaining about how the way that um, Democratic leadership has been addressing um, border security and immigration. They've been kind of saying that you know a lot of more inland Democrats really don't want to address this topic at all because it's such like a you know political third rail. Um, and Republicans have really been kind of pillaring the Biden administration over this, and as as well as well as their Democratic counterpoints. So. Um, if there is, so if you know Republicans do manage to really kind of campaign off of this issue, then it kind of proves it correct that Democrats have been kind of um, neglecting to really kind of uh, pay attention to this on a national scale. Sure, James, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, we've been doing some reporting, uh, you know, earlier in the election cycle um, about the concerns of border Democrats and just border voters in general um, who you know, are more middle of the line, not as liberal progressive as uh, Democrats in Austin and not as uh, conservative as the Republican base, but certainly immigration, the things that they've been going through on the border with the high increases of migrants and then their cities and their counties and their local governments having to spend resources, very limited economic resources on trying to help these migrants um, and then not getting any help and the Democrats from Joe Biden on down, not saying anything about it. Um, I think it really has been a potent message and uh, it's certainly harmed uh, Democrats and really boosted uh, Republicans because, you know, th- uh, I think three, all three of the uh, the candidates down there in South Texas are have some ties to Border Patrol, right, guys? And a couple of them are Border Patrol spouses. Yeah, Myra Flores and Cassie Garcia are, are Border Patrol spouses. Um, I was going to just note, too, I mean, you know, to give the uh, Democratic incumbents a, a little uh, credit here, you know, Henry Cuellar and Vicente Gonzalez have not have been sometimes outliers in their party in terms of at least how they talk about the border um, because they're from that area. They're much more attuned to those local economic stressors that James was just talking about. Uh, but their political problem, though, is separating themselves um, from a national Democratic Party or I would even say statewide Democratic Party, a statewide Democratic Party, a national Democratic Party and a, and a, and a Democratic White House um, that does not talk like that about the border. And so, again, they may have you know, more nuanced uh, views on the border than Democrats writ large. Um, and I think that's a reflection of them representing their districts well. Um, but the political challenge for them this cycle is, tr- you know, trying to separate from the, the national brand. And I think it's it's proving a little hard. Right. And if we can talk a little bit about, you know, like the ne- just the kind of the trends in both parties about um, hyperpolarization. I mean, uh, Queer and Gonzalez are kind of a disappearing breed of folks who um, are not afraid to kind of buck the talking points of their of the national party. I mean, like Henry Queer voted against. Um, a bill that would have protected abortion rights, for example, on a national, uh, on a federal level, um, and you know, as as you know, we often talk about the in- increase in more, I suppose, um, as Dan Crenshaw put them, you know, woke rightist uh, Republicans. I mean, um, that's kind of there's there's a there's a kind of retreating into the corner on the Democratic side as well that um, a lot of more centrist members have been. Um, 
speaking out about as well. Yeah, I mean, I think about how so much of politics, not just in this region, but everywhere is, is so much about identity. And I don't necessarily mean that as in terms of identity politics in the derisive way that Republicans talk about it, although that is some of it too, but also just kind of who, how you vote is also kind of how you associate yourself. And the Republican Party has done such a strong job of painting Democrats as these kind of big city liberals, elites, woke everything like that. And that, you know, these, these cities in the Rio Grande Valley and along the border, these are not big cities. These are, are rural areas or, or smaller towns where that kind of attitude uh, is, is not very popular. And I think there, there is just a situation, not just in the border, but in a lot of places where people don't want to be associated with that. And, and right now the, the, the Democratic Party is associated with that in, in the eyes of a lot of people. I think the Biden administration also, I mean, the Biden administration also has done it to themselves, you know, like they they have not paid attention to immigration. They've skirted the topic every chance they get. I mean, we uh, at the Texas Tribune have been reporting on Operation Lone Star, on the busing of migrants. Um, and I can't remember a single time where like Biden has like on his own, like addressed the issue. And like, you're right, uh, Matthew, like these people are it is it is their identity because a lot of them you know are property owners uh, along uh the the river along the border or even further inland where they're having people cross through their ranches and that's very real to them you know it's it it's very personal to them so when they say hey it's happening to me and nobody's paying attention and the only other group that's paying attention to them is the republicans then you know that's going to be a convincing argument so what how do you counter that james i mean what where let's say just hypothetically right now, I think it's far from a foregone conclusion that Republicans will sweep all these seeds. But clearly things are are worse there than they were four to six years ago. And 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 so where does the Democratic Party go from here? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky spot for them to be in. I mean, I think the border Democrats have done a really good job of trying to sort of tell their story. And you know, like Matthew and Patrick were saying, they have bucked um, the national parties and the statewide parties talking points on this. You know, if you listen to uh, Henry Cuellar and Vicente Gonzalez, you know, going on Fox News, uh, engaging in those debates, sometimes they sound more like Republicans than they sound like Democrats. Um, so it's interesting. But, at, you know, back to, I think, Patrick's point is that they are representing their district. Um, and I think probably Democrats higher up the food chain uh, would be wise to maybe listen to people in those districts um, and say, hey, what do the voters there actually want? Um, because Republicans have certainly been very good um, at uh, at having a broad spectrum of candidates and office holders, at least in the state legislature, uh, where we go from very far right to, you know, centrist, moderate Republicans. Um, and they are able to navigate that into a majority, whereas Democrats seem to, uh, to a couple of our folks' points, you know, very much be going to the progressive woke kind of electorate that um, seems to be very strong in the cities, but ultimately has not won them any statewide elections. And I would add that, you know, some of the more seasoned Democratic leaders, like, say, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, they really kind of understand um, what you're talking about, James. Like, um, you know, during Henry Cuellar's primary, when Jessica Cisneros, um, you know, this progressive standard bearer was uh, running to, um, to to replace him, um, you know, like a lot, we saw a lot of more 
I guess, nationally famous progressives saying, you know, why are we backing Henry Cuellar when he seems to be kind of out of step with a lot of policy issues that the modern Democratic Party stands for. But, you know, leadership in House, like, for example, um, Speaker Pelosi, um, they back, they supported him, A, because, you know, it's kind of their job to support incumbents, but B, because they genuinely thought, you know, this is somebody who really represents the interests of their district. This is somebody who uh, we think will be, um, you know, kind of like our best bet in maintaining control um, in this region. And that's, and that's reflected in the fact right now that even in this, um, you know, kind of red wave-ish environment that Henry Cuellar is still widely viewed as the hardest race of these three for the Republicans to win. Um, you know, even Republicans will acknowledge to you that he is a very well-established um, incumbent whose image is hard to damage, um, just given all the goodwill he's built and, um, and, and not just goodwill he's built with Democrats, but across the political spectrum. And so, you know, I'm not predicting, I'm not making a prediction one way or another about how his race is going to go. But I think the fact that everyone accepts um, that he's going to be the hardest race here for the Republicans is a reflection of those bets that were placed by leadership during the, the primary when they stood by him. Yeah, I think people can kind of count out Henry Cuellar at, at their own peril. He has proven to be a survivor over the years, in, including, you know, in primaries and in general elections. This is obviously a tough year for him for multiple reasons, um, the, the national climate, but also the, the headlines that came earlier this year when the um, F FBI raided his offices in his home. Um, but, you know, I remember, I think it was in 2020, or maybe it was in the primary seeing, you know, there were people were, some people were voting at H Henry Cuellar Elementary School, right? This is a, uh, <laughs> someone who is deeply, deeply ingrained with the community and his family is deeply ingrained in the community as well. So, um, you know, we'll see how things turn out on, on Tuesday night. You know, I think maybe, maybe the best thing that could happen for Democrats in this world is they all get mad at, uh, um, Elon Musk and get off of Twitter and, and, and maybe <laughs> <laughs> that helps them kind of uh, get out of that echo chamber and, and, and push that message along. Uh, but before we move on from the subject of Congress, I also want to talk to you. I mean, Matthew, it seems as though there is a very good chance that Republicans will take retake the U.S. House. And that could really change the dynamics for you know, a lot of uh, members of Congress in Texas who are not facing, you know, big challenges or, or re-election fights this year. What's at stake for the Texas delegation on Tuesday night? Sure. I mean, I think it's pretty, um, it's pretty well accepted on both sides of the aisle that Republicans will take control of at least the House. Um, it's more a question of by how big of a margin um, and if Republicans take control, I mean, this is kind of Texas's delegate, Texas, the Texas delegation's moment to shine. They have the largest Republican delegation in Congress, um, and they have two members who are ranking members on some pretty, you know, pretty important committees. Um, there's Michael McCall on House Foreign Affairs and uh, Kay Granger on uh, House Appropriations. They'll likely become chairs of those very important committees. Um, what's really something that I'm really interested in seeing is like to what extent Texas has a presence in the Republican leadership in the House. Um, immediately after Election Day, we'll be going into House leadership election talk. Um, and something that's kind of notable is, you know, for a delegation this size, um, we haven't really seen much talk about uh, Texas Republican members breaking into the ranks of top leadership. So, um, 
it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, like to what extent, you know, like the state is able to kind of exert its control um, beyond just, you know, the committee memberships. Indeed. All right, well, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors. Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute's vision is for Texas to be the national leader in treating all people with mental health needs. Find out more at mmhpi.org. And philanthropy advocates' work to advance education policy, cradle to career, is more important than ever. Learn more at philanthropyadvocates.org. Okay, so Patrick, there is also a race for governor. Um, help me help me find a way to continue to be interested in this race down the line. It does not feel like much has changed the dynamic in this race for months here. You know, Beto running out of time here. What what are what are you watching in these final days in the 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 race for 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 governor? Uh, not much. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're in, you know, in an all fairness, you know, both candidates, Greg Abbott and Beto O'Rourke are in total get out the vote mode. So they're trying to reach as many people as possible with the same exact talking points, same stump speech, just trying to motivate people uh, and remind people to get out and vote. And so at the end of a race like this, you don't really hear or see much new from the candidates. Um, the TV ads haven't really changed in any notable way at the end here. Um, I guess this is we're speaking Friday. This is, I think, one of the last possible days you can get up a new TV ad before the election. So, um, yeah, as you pointed out, in polling, the race has been pretty static. When you look at likely voters, they favor Abbott um, by uh, mid single digits, high single digits. We've seen two polls that have had Abbott, we've seen two polls recently that have had Abbott above um, 10 in, in double digits. And so, you know, this race has been on a pretty steady trajectory. Um, and at this point, um, you know, for Beto work to win, we would have had to experience a uh, the biggest polling errors uh, of our lifetimes, much bigger than anything we saw with Donald Trump in, in 2016. And so uh, Beto work is obviously trying to prove the polls wrong, trying to kind of scramble the traditional midterm electorate in Texas. Um, and that's, you know, uh, we, you know, and all due respect to Beto work, we hear that every cycle from statewide Democrats and the onus is on them to prove that to us in, until it happens. James, what is at stake for Beto beyond just winning or losing? Is How much do you think his position in this state as someone who can energize Democrats, as someone who, you know, was seen as kind of a leader of this party, a party that is, you know, trying to inch its way into power, how much can that be tarnished by a, you know, significant de defeat on Tuesday night? Yeah, I, you know, I I don't think he necessarily is thinking about that, but obviously people like us are thinking about that. Um, yeah. The shine has worn off on him a little bit since his first run uh, for statewide office in 2018, when he, where he, he was a fresh face, very exciting, didn't have a whole lot of policy positions um, that people could point to. Um, and so he was kind of blank, blank slate and you could do whatever you wanted with him. You could uh, project your feelings and emotions and hopes and dreams onto him. Uh, he was also running against a very unpopular incumbent in, in Senator Ted Cruz. Um, then he did the presidential run. Uh, that didn't go so well, uh, gained a lot of uh, enemies and uh, because of his positions and also just political enemies. Um, and here he is again, going against the arguably the most powerful uh, politician uh, of the last maybe two decades here in Texas. Um, and yeah, it's uh, a, a defeat, I think would be harmful to him. Obviously, it's hard to run again as a 
three-time loser, though there there is history of people who have done it um, and then come back and, and won. You know, politics is full of crazy stories. Yep. Um, but it, I think it will certainly lead to a sort of a, a rethinking, reimagination, or ought to lead to that uh, from Beto O'Rourke and his team. I was like, what, what do we do next? And from the Democrats uh, as to what they, they do next, both with Beto O'Rourke, because there's no question that he's a prodigious fundraiser, um, that he can really energize voters like the Democratic base. Um, but he no longer, I don't think, appeals to those middle of the road voters, those independent, uh, more conservative leaning voters. Um, so you have to figure out one as himself, like what he does with himself next. Is he going to, you know, go all in into the pack? Uh, is he going to try to run for another office? Is he going to just take some time off? Um, and then as the Democratic Party in the state, I think they have to also rethink like, how do we use Beto in future elections? Do we run him as a candidate? Do we help him get out the vote? Do we have him stumping for our other candidates? Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens if he does indeed lose. Well, and, and of course, if he if he wins, then uh, people can come back and 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 you know uh, point out how how foolish I was for even asking these questions at this point <laughs> before the race is already over. I think what a lot of people are, are interested in is what the margins could be in some of the, far, the down ballot uh, sorry down ballot statewide races like lieutenant governor, um, mm -hmm. attorney general. We know that I mean not we know but we can pretty much tell that Dan Patrick. The lieutenant governor is in a bit of a different headspace um, than Abbott's campaign is in terms of how he's looking <laughs> at this race. I mean, you're hearing a good amount of confidence from uh, Abbott's campaign about a resounding win. You can just go to Dave Carney's Twitter feed every day um, and see how kind of peppy he seems. Uh, meanwhile, Dan Patrick uh, seems to be campaigning, um, you know, with a little more um, carefully as if he's in a tighter race. You know, he openly said on a, a in a radio interview recently that these polls that show him ahead by double digits, he doesn't believe them. That the polling he trusts has him, you know, only mid single digits above his Democratic opponents. Um, now, of course, that's something you may want to say during early voting so your people don't get complacent. Um, but there are signs that he is looking at this as a tighter race than maybe Abbott's team is at this point. And then, of course, we have um, you know the you know deeply vulnerable, at least on paper, Ken Paxton. Um, you know, who there were some polls this summer that showed that he was in a tighter race than other statewide officials. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of intrigue uh, on the statewide ballot once you get past the governor's race to see what the margins are going to be. Yeah, and to add to that, I think there is, I mean, there, I think there is reason to be caution, uh, cautious about polls, um, just because those, those margins are so large. And I don't know if they necessarily jive with what we've been seeing. Obviously, we we know that there's you know, issues with polling nowadays, the game has changed so much in terms of like, who's picking up the calls, who's willing to be surveyed for a poll. Um, so I do think that there is reason to be cautious. I, I don't know that all of these races are double digits. Um, but you know, it'll be interesting to see what what happens on on Tuesday. And then also the pollsters can all just laugh in my face uh, after they're they're correct. Indeed. Yeah, the polls do seem a little bit all over the place right now. I mean, they all seem to be showing the Republicans leading um, and, and, and Greg Abbott in particular leading. But but I feel like we've been seeing margins, you know, ranging from kind of mid single digits to 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 low double digits in a way that it, it, it's hard to get a great read on there. It's also like not like we're trying to say that, like the Democrats are so much better off. Like I think one example is like, for example, 
Univision just had a poll the other day, right? And Patrick and I talked about this a little bit offline, but it was a registered voters uh, poll, which is a weird thing to do right now after Labor Day when we're all more focused on likely voters. Um, but even in that poll, it was like Abbott by 4%. So even if you take into consideration like, okay, if we consider the wide uh, broad uh, spectrum of voters who can vote in this election. And if Democrats, uh, you know, fulfilled their needs or their wishes to get all those like unlike unlikely infrequent voters, new voters into the into the um, into the voting booths on election day, then they would still be out four percent at the top of the ticket so it's not like we're saying like oh democrats are like way better off and they may pull an offset pull up an upset but it is you know there is i, I don't know i think there is reason for caution with the polls yeah. i mean absolutely. Oh, go ahead. no go ahead patrick no i was gonna say yeah absolutely i mean po polls you know definitely we've gone through like two reckonings and two election cycles about the accuracy of polls they could certainly uh be off um, this time. One thing I was going to add that I'm, I'm interested in is uh, whether, if you look at the early voting trends right now, whether Republicans could, um, you know, have even more votes to come than expected on election day due to their kind of new uh, reluctance around mail-in voting and even, you know, early in-person voting. Um, you know, that, 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 that could, right now, the early vote numbers generally don't look particularly good for Democrats. Um, if we have a situation where a lot of Republicans are just waiting to vote on election day, this could be an even worse election for Democrats. And so um, someone said something earlier that triggered that thought in my mind, but I wanted to get it out there. Yeah, I actually think that'll be really interesting to watch whether that whether we see kind of a shift for the Republicans once the election day vote totals get start being counted. And, um, you know, given everything that's been said around, uh, you know, mail-in voting and other kinds of kinds of voting as well. I also just wonder about just a worst case scenario, because we talked a little bit already about Beto, a worst case scenario for the Democrats, the, about Beto and the possible, you know, what what does his future look like if he goes through a third straight loss election? And who, you know, what happens to him as a kind of leader of the Democratic Party? But then you also have someone who a lot of folks have identified as the possible future of the Democratic Party in Texas, Lena Hidalgo, seeming to possibly be in trouble in her race for county judge. Patrick, I think Jill Biden, right, will be either in town or on the phone campaigning for her this, this in town. Time. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be a a pretty a pretty striking thing that 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 you know she's she's needing help from a national democrat a national name to come in and help her out in this race late in the game absolutely and, and kamala harris the vice president is doing a virtual event for her um later today friday uh so there's i think there's definitely kind of a white house rescue mission afoot i mean she has been um as we've talked about before on this podcast uh really been just pummeled in that race over the issue of crime, uh, public safety, safety, law enforcement funding. Um, and interestingly, today, just a couple hours ago, she released what I think is probably her final TV ad. I mean, there's only, you know, four days left here to air it. Um, and it's her direct to camera, you know, talking about public safety, saying there's still more work to be done, but, you know, basically saying, I care about keeping your family safe. And it definitely seems like the most direct paid media response yet to just the um, total onslaught of crime-related ads that she's faced 
Um, so that is a huge issue in that race. The polling shows that for likely voters, crime is far and ahead the number one issue in that race. Um, and I think that, you know, that's the issue that if she loses would, was going to be her downfall, you know, fair or not. I know that she argues that she's obviously invested heavily in public safety as county judge. All right. Well, that is about all the time we have for today. Thank you to Matthew, James, and Patrick. Thank you to Justin, our producer. And thank you to the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health, Episcopal Health Foundation, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, and Philanthropy Advocates. Our next TripCast will be a live trip cast from the Texas Tribune offices on Wednesday, the day after the election. And we will hopefully have the answers to many of these questions. So thanks for listening and talk to you all next week. After election day comes to a close, join the Texas Tribune for an in-depth analysis of the results on November 9th in Austin. We'll talk midterm outcomes up and down the ballot and what they'll mean for 2023 at our live post-election TribCast event. Learn more and RSVP to attend at texastribune.org events.